Well, good morning. I want to start this morning by asking a question. You don't need to answer it out loud. I just want you to think about it. And the question is this. What makes the church community unique? What makes the church community different, unique from what we see in the world? Because we know it's certainly not the only place you can find community, right? Uh, there was a time back in the day when I was doing uh, triathlons, was a part of the running club, and that was a community. I remember my first experience, my first triathlon, I was riding out uh, on the Ransom Canyon Triathlon, way behind everybody who was ahead of me, but as I was going out and they were coming in towards the finish line, they were telling me, hey, good job, you're doing great, keep going. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? They're competing against me, and yet they were encouraging me. And I found that that was a part of that community. It was real encouragement. We shared something that we all in, enjoyed together, and it was a great experience. It was a community. Some of you are involved in business clubs like uh, Lions Club or, or Ambux, and those are communities. Very often, we get involved in those kinds of things because they often rally around kind of a common cause, something that you feel like uh, meets a legitimate need in a community, and, and so you want to be a part of that. I know when I got into PT school, I was given a, a scholarship by Ambux. And then once I graduated and was working with pediatric patients, uh, Ambux provided some equipment for children with disabilities. And so it's a significant contribution, and very often we want to be a part of those kinds of things. It's, it's a community. Some of you are getting ready for deer season. There are hunting groups that go together, and there's community there, right? You spend time together. You enjoy a shared interest with each other. There's community. How many of you ladies do bunco nights? That's community. It's a group of people who get together, who enjoy time with one another, usually having something in common with one another, and it's community. So we find community all over the place. So what makes the church unique? Or is it? Because sometimes I don't know that we're all that different than what we see in the world because we can employ very similar strategies to build community around shared interests. For example, instead of putting people into a, a triathlon club or Ambux community, we might have a singles group or young marrieds or student ministry. We might rally around a common cause, like getting uh, shampoo for the, those who need it, or going to feed the hungry, or being a part of a, a program at an elementary school. We feel like that's important, and it is, because it's making a meaningful impact in this community in which we live. We can create churches around common interests. That's something that's happened in our lifetime with cowboy churches motorcycle churches there's several of these examples of people who come together because they have something in common even within traditional church we can segregate into a college campus and an adult campus we can subdivide into a contemporary church or contemporary service a, a traditional service a liturgical service ultimately it's a strategy that's known as niche marketing and it works you just gather people together based on similar interests, and they will come. You will build community. It exists. 
But I don't know that it's all that distinctive from what we see happening in the world. So let me be clear here, because I don't want you to hear me say that these things are bad. And so if you're thinking, oh, gosh, I'm in a young marriage class. Is that a bad thing? Right. Or, or student ministry. That's not what I'm saying. But hear me on this. If your experience of community in the local church is isolated only to those settings, then yes, something is missing. And that something may be a supernatural work of God because here's the reality. You don't need God to build community. You don't. Community exists all over the place. And very often, it's not rallying around a common faith in Jesus Christ, but it's still community. And so you don't need God to build community. So the question is, how did God design the church to be different? If we are intended to be unique, then what's that supposed to look like? What is community in the church and how is it distinctive from the world around us? And I believe that we will find the answer in looking at the one another's in scripture to me as you see these one another's being described it's telling us how we are to relate to one another in a way that is unique and distinct from what you see in the world around us i believe that when these things happen as the scripture calls us to then there will be something that is fundamentally different than what naturally takes place in the world around us you see a christian community should exist simply because of this. It is a miraculous work of God. There is no other explanation. And, and if we function as God's designed us, then that church community, separate and distinct from what you see naturally occurring in the world, should proclaim a message of the gospel like no other community can. That's why we should be distinct. And so when we walk through this together, we're just going to see what that looks like based on what God has inspired through people, through the apostles, through the words of Scripture, in the one another's of what we are called to be as a body of Christ. So before we look at that together, let's offer this time to the Lord. God, we want this to be your time. We want it to be a, a time in which you show us your way, your design, your plan. We are good in the human race of taking matters into our own hands and figuring things out. And very often, we can make things work. We can build great, big churches and communities and, and be real proud of what we've accomplished, but we may have done it separate and apart from what you intended in the first place. And so, Father, we humbly want to come before you this morning and ask that you show us your way, that you give us insight into your plan, and that we would submit to what you've called us to as a people of God who you've designed uniquely to proclaim the message of your gospel to the world around us. We want to be that people, so would you show us the way? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let me kind of clarify how we're going to do this. There's technically over a hundred one another's in the New Testament. So we're not going to look at them individually. We're going to group them into categories so that we can kind of unpack them. And, and they actually very naturally fit into these categories. There's four of them that we'll walk through together over the next four weeks. The first one is unity. That's what we'll talk about this morning. The second is love. And then humility. 
and then encouragement. So if you look at the one another's in Scripture, by and large, they fit very nicely into these four distinct categories. We're going to start with unity because over one-third of the one another's in Scripture are related to this topic, the topic of unity. Because one of the most compelling characteristics of a Christian community should be unity within the diversity of its people. A connection where Jesus Christ might be the only thing you have in common, but it's enough. And you build community around that shared faith in Him. The one thing that I do want us to understand as we enter into this is to to appreciate the fact that unity is not something that we create. Okay? Unity is not something that God has commissioned the church to go out and create for itself. You may remember this passage from last week when we were talking about this central theme in the gospel uh, message that Paul and the other apostles took to the world. It's Galatians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but it's uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, and it says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, unity is a miraculous work of the gospel. It is a miracle of God's working in his people when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we need to understand that even though we don't create it, because it's a gift of the gospel through a shared faith in Christ, we are called to protect it. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. It says this, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word diligent has the idea of being eager, being, being zealous, taking initiative, taking action. When, when I thought about that word, I thought, well, unity kind of reminds me of love in the sense that if you don't nurture love, if you kind of just let it go its own way, it doesn't seem to survive very well. You need to build into it. You need to be intentional, take action, be diligent to be able to foster and, and protect love. Same is true for unity. And so even though we can't create it, we are called to protect it. And so I want us to walk through what I think are three ways to to protect unity within the body of Christ. And that's really what your outline is in the bulletin if you want to kind of follow along. The first one is this. We protect unity by working through our differences. Some passages that speak to that. Mark chapter 9 verse 50, Jesus is speaking. He says, be at peace with one another. Paul's a little more candid in his letter to the Galatians. He says, don't bite, devour, or consume one another. He tells the Colossians, he says, instead, we are called to bear with and forgive one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I think as you look at this group of, of, of one another's that speak to how we are to relate to one another as it, as it relates to unity, the, the, the central theme seems to center on forgiveness. That seems to be at the heart of protecting unity within the church. And so I want us to think through that a little bit, and there's a, 
parable that Jesus tells that I think really hits home. So turn to Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 18. This will be a familiar passage, but I want us to walk through this together as it relates to unity and the heart of forgiveness at the center of this this issue. Chapter 18, verse 23. So Jesus speaking, he begins to tell this parable. Beginning in verse 23, he says this. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought before him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had had and to, so that repayment could be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Again, familiar parable that I'm sure you've heard before. Let me just highlight the fact that it centers on two main people, a slave and a king. A slave who owes this king a debt. Now, the first observation I want you to make as we think through this parable together is that it was a slave who owes the debt. The reason I think that's important is because even though he might be able to pay the debt, He's still a slave. Even though he may be able to to cover the expense, it doesn't change who he is. A slave is a part of his identity. It's a part of who he is in this kingdom in which he lives. And no matter what he does, he can't change that status. He's a slave. It's who he is. But really, the same could be said for his debt as well. The scripture tells us that he owed 10,000 talents. Now, you and I hear that. It means absolutely nothing to us. But most of the scholars agree. There's some debate on exactly how much, but they all agree. It's several billion, with a B, billion dollars. So the parable is intended to give an astronomical amount that there's no possible way that this slave could ever repay so who he is and even what he owes are things that he will never be able to overcome and so in verse 26 listen to what he says though he says the slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him saying have patience with me and i'll repay you everything no he won't He may think, if I work the rest of my life, surely I'll be able to pay down this debt. And it would take him several lifetimes. And he still probably wouldn't be able to do it. So in verse 27, it says that the king of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave his debt. Don't miss the and. Released him. And forgave his debt. He didn't just make his record clean. He changed his status. Not only did he forgive the debt. He released him from slavery. He changed his identity. He's not the same person. Not only did he not owe any money. He no longer owed him his life. In the sense of being a slave. Indebted to him. He was free. 
He was set free in both his finances and his status. And as we hear this parable, I want you to hear the message of the gospel loud and clear. Because here's the reality. Jesus is our king. And we owe him a debt that we could never repay. Not in this lifetime and not a thousand lifetimes after it. And even if we could, it wouldn't change who we are. Because the scripture's clear, we were born a slave. A slave to sin. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And by nature, children of wrath. So who we are. And what we owe are burdens that we will never, ever be able to overcome on our own. But because of his compassion, God sent his son to pay the debt that we owed through his sacrifice on the cross. And when we trust in him, he doesn't just forgive our sins. He sets us free. We're no longer a slave to sin. Our whole identity is changed. The Bible says we are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We are both forgiven and set free with a new identity as a child of God. It's the gospel. And that's the message that Jesus intended to communicate. But it's not the end of the parable. Look at verse 28. But that slave who had been forgiven this great debt he could never repay, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Isn't that interesting? Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Look at the response. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. Can he pay back what he was owed when he's a slave in prison? No. It's impossible. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and responded or reported to the Lord what had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt you owed because you entreated me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger. Hand him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's a strong message, isn't it? But it's very clear that the motivation that we should have in forgiving others is ultimately and completely based on what we have received from God. There's a passage in Ephesians 32. I actually referenced it earlier, but let me finish it because I only gave you half. The first part of it says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Here's the other half. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, if we lose sight of God's grace towards us, then we lose the ability to give that same grace towards others. We put them in our debt as if they owe us something. 
And yet God calls us to forgive just as he has forgiven us. He calls us to work through our differences, to move towards reconciliation. It should be a distinctive characteristic of who we are as the body of Christ. So as we think about that, we need to consider another compelling characteristic of the Christian church, and that is that we live in unity despite our differences. This is why the Bible tells us, as it does in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another, and here's the the condition here, just as Christ has accepted us. Now, think about that. Jesus didn't choose us because we were like him, because we had something in common, or because we did something to somehow prove that we deserved his love and forgiveness. That's not the basis of which that relationship exists. He accepted accepted us despite our differences, despite our sin. He loved us unconditionally. Paul explains what that looks like in his letter to the Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. My version uses the word forbearance. That's kind of a fancy word. It basically means tolerance. It brings this idea of of enduring a, a difficult situation. And the key here, is commitment or contentment that does not demand perfection. Don't miss that. It's contentment that does not demand perfection. And when it comes to relationships, here's how we often define perfection. People who are just like me. (laughs) Right? People who see things the way I see them. That often is my definition of perfection. And so for me personally, I'm a planner. Okay? And so I have to be careful not to look at those who are spontaneous as irresponsible. Right? In the same way, I'm very introspective. Believe it or not, I have to work very hard to think about words that come out of my mouth. I have to think inside my head and, and try to get some clarity. And so people have to be careful not to wrongly assume that that I'm insensitive, that I'm unwilling to talk through things. I can't hardly figure out what I want to say, much less be able to verbalize it at a moment's notice. So we have to be patient towards one another. I think that's why those qualifiers exist. Look at that again. Have humility, verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience. You see, you're called to have humility towards those who are different than you, based on the conviction that you're not better than them. That's that idea of humility, to to have the conviction that you're not better than them. This idea of gentleness is this idea of, of looking for what's right instead of always focusing on what's wrong. This idea of patience is reminding us that we're all in process, that no one's arrived. There's always something important that I can learn, especially from those who are different than me. 
I think that's why James tells us not to be a judge in our relationships with one another. Turn, if you will, this is an important one to look at. James chapter 4, verse 11. So keep going right. Past Hebrews and James is right next door to Hebrews. James chapter 4, verse 11. And I want us to look at this one together. I want you to notice how James is going to pick up on this same quality of humility. But listen to how he speaks to the issue. Verse 11 says, of chapter 4, says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. For if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? The idea here is that humility keeps us from expecting others to meet our standard as if we are the judge. That's what that means. When, when I'm a judge, I have a standard that I expect you to meet. And, and what James is saying is, is that's not the way God sees it. Instead, we need to be motivated to, to pray for and to speak peace with those who are different than we are. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't speak the truth in love. This is not a, an out clause for accountability. I mean, who am I to judge, right? That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is don't be the judge by holding them accountable to your standard. Instead, we need to do something different. And, and here, let me just say this. Here's why we don't want to hold them accountable to our standard. Because, again, you may be different than me, but here's what I know about my standard. It has exception clauses that always align with my weak spots. <laughs> That's my standard. It has exception clauses that always align with my weak spots. In my pride, I'm much more inclined to give myself grace instead of you. And so James is telling us only God is the judge. We together are equally accountable to his standard. And guess what? We all fall short. Every single one of us. Nobody meets the standard. And so we are in equal need of God's grace and forgiveness. That's our common ground. So don't compare sins. Don't measure yourself against someone else. Don't, don't look to the world to judge what's right and what's wrong. Be humble. And look to God. And recognize that you need His grace as much as anybody else in the world. And He extends it freely. So living with our differences is a part of God's design for the church. It's a part of his plan. It doesn't really threaten unity. In fact, I think in many ways it protects it because it's what keeps our eyes on what we ultimately share in common, a desperate need for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of distancing ourselves from, from one another, we want to draw near. Instead of looking down in judgment, we want to lift up in prayer. We want to accept one another despite our differences just as Christ accepts us. You see, I think it's an incredibly compelling attribute 
of the Christian church when unity exists within diversity. Sometimes the only thing we may have in common is our faith in Jesus Christ, and it is enough. It's enough. So that's why we ultimately need to have a heart that celebrates our differences instead of avoiding them. The scripture speaks to it this way. It says, confess your sins to one another. It says, to seek good for one another. I want you to notice that these are reciprocal commands. In other words, they demand or they require uh, that it goes both ways. Your confession should help me recognize where I too fall short. And I should then be encouraged to do the same. Your kindness towards me should motivate me to be kind towards others in the same way. But it doesn't happen that way if it's just a one-way street. There's nothing worse than pouring your heart out to someone only to have them respond, wow, that's really bad. I bet that's hard for you. As if they would never do something like that. Maybe they wouldn't. But that doesn't mean your sin is any prettier than my sin. Just because you put lipstick on a pig doesn't make that pig any prettier than mine. See what I'm saying? God doesn't call us to fix one another. So right up front, I want you to know that's not one of the one another's, okay? He doesn't call us to, to fix one another. Instead, my goal, as I hear your confession, should be to point you to Christ because that's the only hope for either one of us. We may have different struggles, but we ultimately share the same solution, the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I think that's what Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. It's a familiar verse. You don't need to turn there, but listen to what it says. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you and remain, or remain absent, I may hear of you. And this is what he wants to hear, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a shared conviction that the gospel is our only hope. That's the only way that we stand together, that we have the same mind. Our unity is based on the fact that our lives are anchored to the same rock. We may have differences in a thousand different ways, but we have one and the one most important thing in common. Our hope is fixed on Christ. The truth is, we need people in our lives who are different than us. God designed it that way. We need people who look at life from a different angle, who cling to the gospel from a different point of view. It's a diversity that gives color and depth to the love of Christ. And outside of that kind of community, we will develop a very narrow and limited view of who God is. We can only know the fullness of God through a shared experience of His Spirit at work in our lives. That's why God designed the church. The Spirit exists in each and every one of you, and only when we relate to each other in this unity of community that He created do we experience and understand the fullness of who He is. Outside of that, you can't possibly understand. 
So with that in mind, I want to give us three practical ways to to practice these one another's this week. The first one is this. Since forgiveness is really at the heart of unity, as you look at the scripture, it continues to circle back to that point. I think many of us need to begin there. And I fully understand that there are those who are here this morning who've been hurt, who've been betrayed, and that offense may be one in which that person could never, ever, in a thousand lifetimes, ever repay. My encouragement to you is this. Don't put them in your debt. Don't make them spend that lifetime trying to do right to cover that wrong. Because it's impossible. And just be reminded of the debt, the insurmountable debt that you owed to God that was forgiven by grace in Christ. And then go and do the same. Forgive as he has forgiven. Unconditional. No strings attached. Extend them grace instead of demanding them to repay. And here's one of the ways that I would encourage you to do that because that's asking a lot, I understand. And if you're like me, one of the things that limits my ability to forgive someone is because I fixate on what it is that they did wrong to me. And and all I can think about is the offense over and over again, and I never get anywhere when that becomes my heart towards them. So here's where I, I recommend that you and I go. I encourage you to spend your time focusing on the grace of God that has been extended to you over over and over again so that you become so grateful for the insurmountable grace that has been extended to you that it just flows out of who you are towards others. And and let's just see if focusing on his grace towards you might not in some miraculous way give the ability to have grace towards others. The other thing I want us to be careful of is building community around similarities. (laughs) Forming groups that build relationships with people who are just like us. Because remember, you don't need God to build community. (laughs) So if we really want to be the church that God's called us to be, then there needs to be something supernatural that takes place within the relationships that we have that goes beyond being like each other. You're going to have to postpone this one. But here's your application. Next week, when you walk in this room, do not sit in your same place. (laughs) I'm serious. I am dead serious. Why why do we do that? Because you know everybody around you. and, And you know what's been going on. It's very comfortable to talk to those people. Because you're like them. You share something in common. You congregate in those groups. It's human nature. But it's not spirit-led. And so next week, I want to urge you to sit among those with whom you don't have relationships and find out something that you can learn about them. Expand your understanding of who's in this church body and the relationships that God's gifted us with. So I realize you're going to have to postpone it a week, and I hope that you don't forget. I may give you some time next Sunday morning. 
as I see where you're sitting, to turn my back and say, okay, everybody move. (laughs) I know, we're creatures of habit. Here's the last thing. Take some time this week to practice the one another's and make sure it goes both ways. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. In the midst of our differences, remember the one thing we have in common. Striving together for the sake of the gospel. Because if the only thing that we have in common is Jesus Christ, we need to believe that it's enough. It's the rock that our life is anchored to. The only hope that we have is grace and forgiveness from him. You know, I believe if if this is who we are, and we live out these one another's, and, and, and especially as we begin thinking about that as it relates to unity, if that becomes a distinctive of who we are as a church body, where we work through our differences and, and we are able to learn and understand. Because here's what I've seen, and this, this, this troubles my heart. I've seen more examples in my lifetime of people who are in a church who have a difference with someone Instead of working through that, they disappear. They're gone. And I look at that and I say, what makes that any different than what exists in the world around us? We're not distinctive at all if that's who we are. And so let's be the people that God's created us to be. Trust His Spirit to do things that we're not capable of. Like extend forgiveness towards somebody whose offense can't be repaid in a lifetime. And let's see if we entrust ourselves to him and rally around what it is we have in common, and that is we are in equal need of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let's see what he might do to shine through that body of believers in ways that no other community in this world can. None. It would be distinctly different than anything you see, no matter where that community exists. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? And so let's just pray that we might be that people who don't create unity because it's a gift of the gospel. But we certainly want to protect it by ensuring that we are anchored on the same grace and forgiveness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's um, real easy for us to to fall short. (laughs) In fact, it's a part of our nature. But yet you, because of your great compassion towards us, gave your only son as a forgiveness of our debt, a debt in which we couldn't pay in a thousand lifetimes. And even if we could, it wouldn't change who we are, a slave to sin, by nature a child of wrath. But because of your grace and forgiveness, when we entrust ourselves to you, you not only forgive our sins, but you turn us from this child of wrath into a child of God, an heir of the promise of life eternal. Father, as we are recipients of such an incredible love and grace and forgiveness, I pray that we might be a people who freely extend that to one another, that we live in unity despite our differences, that we go out of our way to build connections with people who are different than us. And we see the goodness in their perspective and learn something new about you because it's not something that we would naturally see on our own. 
And may we always remember the thing that we have in common. Our lives are anchored to the same rock. And we are in equal need of your grace and forgiveness. Lord, may we be that people who protects the unity that is gifted to us as a miraculous work of God through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be that people. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.